mechanism of getting it to people kind of changed the storytelling around the product itself. So what had been a very deep experience when you come take a tour of the distillery now is an email and the story is the same, but the email has far fewer characters to, to try to get to people. In today's episode, we're going to talk about food and beverage, two things that we know are the ultimate social connector across generations. I had a chance to sit down with Tulin Tuzel, a baby boomer and food industry veteran who continues to innovate within health and wellness, as well as Colin Spolman, a Gen Xer and founder of a craft distillery here in Brooklyn. I chose to speak to them because during the pandemic, when the service industry has been battered from all sides due to restrictions and closures, both Tulin and Colin must innovate how they get their products to the people. In our conversation, we tackled questions like, how do you adapt past experience and knowledge to meet the current times? How do you drive storytelling and connection in the absence of intimacy? And what does solidarity mean to business owners in an industry that's all about bringing people together? I'm Jesse McGuire. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get right into it. We're excited to talk with both of you because we know that food and spirits bring people together and they are a portal to culture. And so as you think about that, I would love to know how has the pandemic changed the way that you have approached your own personal missions as well as the the work that you've been doing? And maybe Colin will start start with you. So uh, whiskey is I, <laughs> at its best, it brings people together, but we you know try to focus on the aspect of whiskey that is used to sort of celebrate and, and kind of... Uh, take an opportunity to kind of relax and enjoy life outside of work for most people. And so we are a very small sort of craft oriented distillery kind of make everything in a way that was a little bit contrary to the sort of larger distillers that were making American whiskey in Kentucky. There really hadn't been a lot of variety in American whiskey. So kind of dedicated ourselves to kind of playing different whiskey cultures, Scotch whiskey, American bourbon, moonshine, and kind of throwing that all into a pot and, and having fun with it. When the pandemic happened, we realized we were sitting on devices that could manufacture, well, whiskey and hand sanitizer are chemically nearly identical. And that is always a joke amongst distillers that we could make fuel or um, solvents for cleaning. It was a joke until all of a sudden, like New York City ran out of hand sanitizer and, and medical facilities ran out of hand sanitizer. So we devoted our production to making hand sanitizer. And then after a couple of weeks, we started getting beer from breweries around the city and then distilling that into sanitizer, having them distribute. So we even created this kind of broader network of distribution of hand sanitizer that went to medical facilities and nursing homes and city employees, FedEx workers, anybody who was kind of still on the streets back in early March. And then that kind of like waned because Purell figured out how to make more Purell. <laughs> and so the hand sanitizer business dried up. So since then, we've been trying to find ways to do sort of virtual experiences, essentially Zoom whiskey tastings. That continue to be a part of our business, but just finding also ways to actually find consumers because alcohol has traditionally been forbidden 
to ship it to people. And during the pandemic, there's some easing of those restrictions that's temporary, but kind of trying to take advantage of the sort of relaxing legal constraints around getting our whiskey to individuals and kind of reorienting people's ideas. For a lot of people, we spent 10 years educating them that we couldn't ship them any alcohol. And so now we've had to kind of reconceptualize and say, actually, now we can ship you alcohol. And supporting a small business, you know, is something we're trying to encourage people to do because, in fact, we're most at risk of, you know, <laughs> going under. And and also, we kind of service our community in a way that whiskey is a community, restaurants and bars are a community. And so to try to keep that aspect of our uh, business story first and foremost has been essentially the project of the last six months. Julian, I feel like that's what you've built your career on was innovation and adaptation and pivoting. So I'm curious um, for you, how has the pandemic either changed the way that you're looking at the food industry or just in your own personal practice? Sure. Now, I think food is in one way very basic, very personal uh, way of taking care of ourselves, psychological as well as physical need, but it's also a social connector. We share the food together. And actually, back at Sabra, our motto was share the world because we do share the world through our food. So I think that the food has changed on both sides, on the personal side. I'm sure you're reading people are suddenly doing sourdough bread and making soups and stews and becoming very comforting. There is a move towards really taking care of ourselves and family and more cooking and baking and people who didn't, you know, uh, every few days I read something, the bread makers are out, you know, things that people have given you three years ago for Christmas. Now, (laughs) suddenly you are trying to use it. So that has changed quite a bit. Obviously, we are cooking more. Food industry, I think, has really rallied to make certain ingredients available. There was a shortage of flour. Uh, as much as, you know, toilet paper and so forth, certain ingredients, people were trying to stock up. Clearly, the social aspect also has changed. We used to go to the restaurants and not as many, you know, restaurants. We, myself and my family, decided that we are going to have a night of just ordering food from local establishments around us so that we could keep them, uh, you know, we can keep them going. Uh, pickups and so forth, the whole mechanism of how hospitality is meeting the needs has completely changed. And I think it's going to last longer than just the duration of this epidemic. It's almost uh, mandatory now that uh, you need to have a way to deliver. And obviously, the services have also picked up. So that's another aspect of just socializing over food. I don't get together with my neighbors to go to a restaurant anymore. And a, and a personal for me, another thing that has changed is travel. I was an example of experiencing the world through food and wine, just by going there, visiting and immersing myself into the culture of, let's say, the food of Sicily or, you know, the wines of South Africa. And that has come to a stop for the time being. I can't wait for it to start again. But we are reading about it. Instead of going to, you know, Tuscany, maybe I'm on a wine tasting through a proprietor like Colin 
talking about wine. So I think the virtual world of food has come to being, whether it's just having a dinner party over Zoom or having a wine tasting or scotch tasting online to just watching a lot of these television programs. The food-oriented programs have really been very popular if you look at Netflix and things like that. So we still yearn for it. Because of the restrictions, we can't quite get to it. You know, I'm in Chicago now. I noticed there are some outdoor seating and so forth. But clearly, there's been a huge change in the restaurant hospitality scene. Colin, I'm curious from your perspective, if you think that these changes to how we're seeing lifestyle experiences, if you are as open and uh, adaptable to that, or you think that there's going to be a different type of long-lasting change to how we see lifestyle and experiences in that way? It's it's hard to say. I do think, you know, certainly the the social patterns are changing for the... For the worst, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do feel like there was a moment where we were all kind of coming together over Zoom and then everybody sort of got tired of it. And, and now there's this sort of bleakness that has set in and, and I see it especially in restaurant culture in, in, in particular in New York just because so many places have closed. There is the question of if the, the talk of returning has now kind of fundamentally changed because there will be so few restaurants left when we do return. And there's a feeling that like the the tricks that people have done to sort of keep social during the pandemic are they're they're not quite as good. So I feel like what's happening now is everybody's just breaking rules because they can't take it anymore, and uh, and that's what's probably fueling a lot of the increased numbers around the country. So I don't know what permanent changes will be, and obviously there's like you know going to be younger people who may not really know that much different. And so how that does get sort of programmed into the way that you experience something like drinking, which for instance, is very different in a social context than when it even, you know, when you're doing it at the end of the day to make dinner or something like that is a very sort of different experience with it. So I'm very pessimistic, (laughs) but not altogether maybe deeply pessimistic because obviously they're uh, you know at some point people will find a way to get what they need and so it will be curious how that culture adapts over the long term and so did you, yeah yeah um, i'm sorry did, did you find that the demand for mm-hmm. uh, alcohol or specifically for whiskey has actually remained steady or even increased it has decreased slightly and that is probably true for the big companies and the small companies collectively. Mm-hmm. Because in as much as there's, the media is reporting that people are consuming way more alcohol yeah. because liquor stores are selling more alcohol. That is true. But with the loss of social drinking in restaurants sure. and social drinking at parties, the overall consumption, certainly of spirits, probably of everything except for sort of canned seltzer is down, down, down. Whiskey is actually a little bit less likely to suffer because it's not the whiskey that we make is not something that people usually make cocktails from. Yes. So all of our friends who are in the cocktail sort of world, that is a much uh, reduced category of spirits consumption. Whereas whiskey, maybe people are drinking it sort of on its own and that has suffered maybe a little less. Yeah. Um, But I feel like our, 
our business, which is, uh, you know, alcohol <laughs> consumption, um, is being sort of misrepresented in the media as this um, boom time for yeah. alcohol and, yeah. and pandemic alcoholics, none of which is maybe there are a few pandemic alcoholics, but I don't think it really reflects what's genuinely going on. seems like the structure of the businesses have changed or the structure of entire segments for example, if you are a bar owner, you're doing less, you know, less, much less business if you're even still in business. And yet, uh, perhaps the artisanal beverage consumption, mm-hmm. if I'm not spending a lot of money uh, going to a restaurant, I have more money to maybe buy an expensive ingredient right. um, just to treat myself and probably similar kind of demand holds for the alcohol industry maybe the you know the lower shelf alcohols are not going as much because cruise ships are not in Mm -hmm. business uh or uh bars are are much more reduced but maybe you'll splurge on a very nice bourbon or whiskey to to have at home Right. I think you hit it on the head when you said that the mechanism of distribution is now so crucial and has changed so drastically. And that um, ultimately the the end use pattern and consumption behavior is a little different. But for us, absolutely, it is that mechanism of getting it to people kind of changed the narrative of the storytelling around the product itself. So what had been a very deep experience when you come take a tour of the distillery yeah. now is an email. And the, the story is the same, but the email has far fewer characters sure. to, to try to get to people. But also the emails, if the story is good, it lands more and people's attention is sort of different. So I feel that that has changed for certainly for us, uh, but I, I, I'm sure throughout food culture. But, you know, not everybody can become a storyteller and write poetic emails and create the imagery to support it. It just, it does accelerate a certain thing that, that was already happening more generally in culture, which was sort of d- different ways of storytelling around food. So I'm wondering if either of you have thoughts or specific ideas around how to combat the sort of declining need of consumption and bringing people together from a local level? I think communicating, you know, being intimate, we can't touch people anymore, but I think our style could be intimate. You know, my latest adventure right now, as I mentioned to you, is is to really team up with my son and I I am in dietary supplements and wellness-oriented nootropics and dietary supplements. And it's an e-commerce business. And I think that the response really depends on personalizing it. And we need to be able to create some level of intimacy to be talking to you directly to pick up on a certain need. And even more so when we are all distanced. Uh, So I think that uh, that is one. The other thing that I notice is that this pride of community, and to your point, Colin, there is one place that I enjoy that's not too far. And uh, I'm always pushing, like, let's go get from them because I want them to stay open. So I think that the sort of coming together as a community, right now I'm more interested in finding that small restaurant in the neighborhood to help them as opposed to a McDonald's or Burger King or all those, even though they have better established procedures and 
you know, safety measures and so forth, there is a certain level of comfort. So I think those are the two things, making it intimate and reaching out to the person and making it relevant to the needs of that uh, person. Touching some kind of a hot button, given the current stresses and uncertainties and so forth about taking care of myself. And then the second is the community spirit. Like that all sounds wonderful and I think really important, but what are the realities of that as a small business in Brooklyn? Like there probably are a lot of people who say, I want to really help out this craft small business. Are they actually doing it? Like do you find that it's it's happening and seeing the results in your own business? Yes. And I think the advantage that we have is that we can adapt very quickly and read the community in a way that a larger company that services multiple communities has more difficulty doing. So, you know, for instance, when the Black Lives Matter protests were sort of all of a sudden rippling throughout Brooklyn, that we could be there and we had all this sanitizer and it was like really the first moment that anybody was actually leaving their houses. So it was this kind of like, oh, we're going to, we're going to all do that. Let's, let's, you know, how are we going to be safe about it? So we were able to donate a lot of sanitizer to Black Lives Matter Brooklyn and to be able to kind of participate in that dialogue that was happening of course, all over the country and, and all over the world, but particularly for us, the, it was important that it was in our community. And so to kind of read the mood, I guess, a little bit of the audience and and so to be able to, yeah, partner with the retailers that are interacting directly with people and, and finding ways to, yeah, get them something. On the flip side, you know, we're an expensive whiskey and not everybody going through um, a furlough or a layoff from a job is able to, you know, pony up for the, the local artisan bourbon or, you know, craft yeah. moonshine. Yeah. So, you know, I think people are trying and they want to do it, but, but it's also like a scary struggling time for a lot of people. And just the uncertainty has left people, I don't know, edgy. <laughs> so that, that's a, that's a hard thing in a way to respond to, I love the word intimacy. I think it's a very appropriate word, but it's also, you have to get intimate with people's edginess and that, you know, that's, that's weird. That's new for, for businesses to be doing. And it was interesting to watch other businesses react to Black Lives Matter and, and some of the other dramatic things that have happened over the past six months, because it, it is hard. It's, it's hard to figure out where you fit in all, to all of that as a business, as a person, as a, as a, as a community member. I'm curious, Tulin, because I feel like your perspective is obviously from a larger, like multinational, global corporations. What is the flip side of that? Currently, I am now in a small business. Uh, my son has a very small business, online e-commerce business, which is helpful. From the big business standpoint, I still maintain ties with my you know, old R&D team. Imagine being an R&D team in food research and development and not being able to go to the office on a, or to your lab bench on a regular basis. And I don't know if they will ever get back to the same level of in-person meetings. Imagine this going on for a decade. And imagine building team and establishing a corporate culture. To reflect a little bit of Colin's pessimism, I am somewhat pessimistic about the long-term effects for the corporate, large corporate organizations. For uh, a year or two, it may not be so significant, but after a few years, nobody will know each other. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm curious thinking about all the different restrictions that have been put into place and all the different health codes and CDC guidelines. When you look at it from your own businesses and from your own perspective, is it overkill? <laughs> Oof, I don't know. I'm not in a position to, to comment necessarily other than I'm, I feel we, we come from a very heavily regulated industry to begin with. So we inevitably just say the government tells us what to do and we do it. <laughs> so we have entered into our business from that point of view already. So hard to say. I mean, there's been a lot of confusing directives for a small business person to try to interpret which of those is real, which of those is not, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an, an added burden that any business is going through, whether you're a small business or even a, a giant business. We just had a, a TV show shoot in the distillery. You know, they did everything in the safest way possible. But on the other hand, you know, there's actors in a bar. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're in our tasting room pretending it's a real bar that doesn't have a 25% restriction. So I don't know, is that safe? I, you know, I have no idea. The burden on researching the rules, which anybody is in the business of if you're in sort of food and beverage production, there's a lot of rules that you have to follow as it is. But now there's a certainly another layer of, of is, is this for real? Do we really have to follow this? But I guess I feel I, I have a certain faith in New York specifically. You know, I, I think this has been a moment where um, leadership has has demonstrated itself and the absence of leadership has demonstrated itself. It's easier to follow a leader that you trust. And, and I think in New York, that has more or less been well-managed. In general, I feel confident that we were following the right rules all along. Let's put it that way. In a similar way, I think food and beverage is, is always regulated. So uh, the regulations probably don't feel overkill or unnatural. But I think there is a level of inconsistency and lack of information what are the best practices to uniformly apply across geographies, across different parts of our lives? You know, when I look around and, and look at the numbers, it really is very disappointing with all of the effort that some people have put in and then others, you know, rejected or whatever. We are seeing that many cases and that many deaths every day. That's very disappointing and disheartening. An airplane can be full, but a restaurant has to be 25%. It's that, like, where does this That's make any sense? exactly what I mean, the inconsistency <laughs> yeah, yeah. and unsteadiness. Yes. And, and then I think you kind of come to the conclusion that this is going to be a while for, you know, life gets back to 80% normal. So, What ideas might you have that are very specific to this moment we're living in that is making you think about a legacy? Like what, when in 10 years, when we look back, what is important about um, some of that thinking? The idea that I am really very focused on uh, these days is that self-care is become very top of mind. Uh, part of it, as I understand, is, is people's need for reliable information that's accessible. So if you're not a PhD chemist and living in uh, forums that talk about uh, biochemistry or cognitive health and so forth. So if you're not in that camp, and if you're not the kind of person who says, whatever will happen, will happen, you know, if it's my faith, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. So if you take those away, there's a middle ground of people with somewhat moderate involvement or uh, more involvement with health and wellness. 
And some of them are proactives, health proactives. Some of them are more interested in discovery. But there is a corollary to that about how do I take care of myself for the purpose of enjoying life, the quality of life for a longer period. It's not just longevity, but it's also how do I live my life? How active can I be? So uh, that's an area I think uh, that will uh, stay with us. And it's an interesting area for businesses to think through. Or opportunities. Yeah, I guess I would re- respond almost in the polar opposite, which is just it's a little bit because of my own sort of interest in history and the, it's just the nature of whiskey is you make something, you put it in a barrel and then you come back to it in 7 years and you have no idea what's going to happen in, <laughs> in those 7 years. And so it isolates you and insulates you from the the changes of a given moment. And so it is kind of my almost obsession to ignore the outside world and focus on this this very simplistic, ritualistic whiskey making process, and say, "Well, in twenty years, we'll have our twenty year old pandemic version, and what will we have be thinking about?" You know, at that point in time, it did occur to me that the last time there was a pandemic in the United States, we very quickly past prohibition, uh, like <laughs> two years later. So it's hard to predict. Alcohol is not very good for you. So I, I do hope the wellness trend <laughs> plays no, no, out slightly I, I, differently I this time I, I, around. I completely yeah. agree and understand there is, you know, in co- consumer segmentation from a food, food and, and beverage business as well. There is a segment that we used to call inspiration chasers. And what you're describing exactly sounds like them. And this is the people who go out of their way to just experience one specific food. Or like you said, I want to experience what this brew would taste like. Um, you can only halfway guess what it might, which direction it might go, but you can never experience fully until you experience it. It's not a huge segment, but a very distinct segment. I mean, that these are not regimented people. They are not wellness. You know, I get up every morning and I do military exercises. Uh, that segment exists as well. But this inspiration chasers are exactly what you're referring to. I am a little bit towards that camp as well myself. Yeah, I think even as we pursue the sort of adapt our businesses to the time, there's also something to remember about the integrity of what exists and you know not not lose sight of why people love to eat and and the the processes and and particularities of a given object or food that 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 connects people to them and for whiskey what's so exciting to me i don't know exciting is the wrong word but you know it's been around for 400 years 500 years it's still we're 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 trying to do it as as much like it used to be done in the you know, 1700s as possible to deliberately abdicate um, novelty and innovation, trying to do this somewhat historical process. There's there's a very Zen approach attitude where you just it, again it's this sort of ritualistic thing, and you just that becomes the the integrity of it. It's you, even the taste. Sometimes, you know, you can string along the tasting notes, but ultimately they're secondary to the truth of it, that it's 
10 years old and it's it lived through this and it came from this field of corn that existed 10 years ago in upstate new york that is now a shopping mall you know that that kind of um permanence of it is sort of what appeals and sort of in a way finding ways to then connect that to to a contemporary audience is where where i probably draw the fun of it so when you get the corn it's a traditional and you're a traditional you don't change your technique where do you draw the line as to how much you need to manage the ingredient or how much does the ingredient need to lead and whatever is the result of that brew is what you enjoy yeah for us it's always been a little bit about we have these farmers they make organic they're they're intellectual farmers almost in, in the way that they approach organic farming. In the beginning, it was just, they, they, they also happen to be, they have a website. So when you're a, <laughs> a Brooklyn trying to find a, a farmer, you know, the fact that they had a website made it easier, but it also helped, you know, they, they, they just were kind of a little bit on the avant-garde farmers and we found them easily but have come to appreciate everything that they sort of stand for. And so it's been very easy to sort of commit to that grain and then let the whiskey that comes from it speak to that process, as opposed to coming in and saying, well, I like Maker's Mark as opposed to Woodford Reserve, and I want it to be more like this. So we want to find a grain that has more of that flavor profile. And so... So anyway, I, you know, it's, it's been a little bit of like letting the grain speak for itself. But it's interesting to have that relationship with agriculture as an urban person in a city is kind of definitely unusual. We wanted to end with one, this last question, which is in today's world, what does the word solidarity mean to both of you? <laughs> I'll defer. <laughs> I'll let you take that one while I think about it. I think that to me, it means finding out ways of uh, togetherness, even when there are constraints. And it also, I, you know, my mind keeps thinking about the, the corn that, you know, used to be in the field and now it's a, uh, it's a shopping center. This whole idea of sort of harmony with, you know, nature sharing our resources with the whole globe. Uh, you know, figuring out ways of being together and living together in a world that's full of constraints, ever-changing, finding ways of connecting, finding ways of uh, finding a path that helps us move forward in our lives in the best possible way, and then also finding unity with the, uh, with the nature. We still need to live together. Uh, we need to find common purpose. We need to actually, in today's world, heal some um, divisions and move forward in a way that gives us a pleasure and a reason to go forward. So to me, that's probably as, it's not elegant, but that's as much as I can think of for solidarity. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what we touched on earlier is that you, you have this fear of the other person because, you know, the, uh, the pandemic has created this very, unusual to all of us situation where you there's a distrust of somebody um which was already on top of you know some cultural divisions that were sort of expressing themselves more perhaps but by the same token i've also felt much closer to people who i often interact with very superficially 
And so I think because of the uh, because of the uneasiness that is created by the situation, there's also just this deeper hunger for connection. And the ability to tap into that does breed solidarity. And certainly New York strong is, you know, I mean, it's just when New Yorkers come together, my God, it's, it's unusual and it's remarkable. And I, I lived through September 11th and it was the same, same kind of moment. I was just kind of like, huh, wow, this is a city that really, you know, for, for as, as annoyed with every other person on the street as you always are, there is a deep love under that. And, and so that's also playing out. And that for me, uh, certainly reflects the solidarity that has happened in, in New York City and, and in, around the country, for sure. This conversation made me think of how I've personally adapted to the connection I have with my community. It took me back to the collective actions that I was a part of over the summer here in Crown Heights. My children and I participated in the citywide clapping every day at 7 p.m. to honor New York's essential workers. And we ran into what could only be called socially distant black parties in Bed-Stuy that continued to give life to the Black Lives Matter movement. I am inspired by how Colin and Tulin have adapted to constraints in their industries by reevaluating their means of distribution to better serve their communities. As someone who runs a design studio, it made me continue to question how it can help different communities and neighborhoods find creative ways to come together. Constraints breed creativity, and the best kind of innovation can often emerge from the most difficult times. 